As we grow increasingly aware of how we, as humans, impact the world, efforts to reduce waste and create less harmful ways of existing are appearing daily. From decades-old recycling measures to new initiatives that encourage composting and more efficient electrical consumption, the Green Revolution is upon us. But meeting these challenges requires time, energy, and personnel. In fact, new green jobs are growing at a rapid pace. In the U.S., 875,000 people already work in so-called green jobs. According to Bureau of Labor Statistics, these jobs are expected to grow over 8% in the coming decades to nearly a million. As this new green economy forms, what do green jobs look like and what does a life in sustainability mean? How can we learn more about how to get involved? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Lisa Lynn, Director of Sustainability for Harris County, and Richard Johnson, the Senior Executive Director of Sustainability at Rice University. Um, before we jump right into our conversation, though, I want to remind you that KPFT Houston is currently in our October Fund Drive. As public radio, KPFT Houston can only exist with your support. Over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and want to support our work, please call 713-526-KPFT and pledge a donation. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer to support our work. In the coming weeks, Gulf Streams will feature conversations with local advocates about regenerative agriculture and urban farming. We'll hear from experts on disaster recovery and how Houston has rebuilt since Harvey. We'll meet with city officials to discuss what's happening with transportation and development in Houston. And we'll talk with Pulitzer Prize finalist Elizabeth Rush all about her new book, The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. If you pledge $100 or more to Gulf Streams, we'll automatically enter you in a raffle for a signed copy of The Quickening by Elizabeth Rush. Additionally, if you want to become a station sustainer, ask about our memory bricks, permanent inscribed tributes to your generosity here at the studio. And during our entire pledge drive, for every $1,000 donated to KPFT Houston, we'll be donating a parka to the Houston Center for Independent Living. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn all about the unique pledge drive offerings going on this month. We're delighted to bring you important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond on Gulf Streams, but can only do so with your support. So please, call 713-526-KPFT, make a one-time or sustainer donation, mention Gulf Streams, and help us keep ad-free public radio on the air here in Houston. One other exciting bit of housekeeping before we dive into our conversation, I'd like to tell our listeners that starting this Friday, we'll have a podcast version of the episodes that are airing so that you can go back and listen to episodes you'd like to hear again, or if you miss us live on the air, you can easily access that wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and so we're very excited about that coming out uh, and just wanted to give us a little moment to acknowledge we have that coming forth this Friday. Um, so with all that said, Lisa and Richard, thank you so much for joining. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Uh, sustainability directors extraordinaire. Um, and maybe we'll just start there with what is a sustainability director? What does that mean? What do you do? Richard, would you like to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, it means you uh, you roll the proverbial boulder up the hill every day and watch <laughs> it roll back down. Uh, no, so it really does vary depending upon what kind of organization that you're in. Um, and 
and what that organization does. So um, my role at Rice, um, if, because it's in higher education, not only do I touch the traditional things like energy and water and green building and solid waste and recycling and transportation, but also education and research. Whereas if, if I um, you know, happen to work for, say, United Airlines, you know, that would look very, it would be a very different kind of job. Um, Lisa? Yeah, and I would say even from the local government perspective, it's it's similar but different uh, in many ways. Um, this is the first time that Harris County has actually had a director of sustainability okay. role. So it's actually kind of building from the past experience that I've had from other cities, um, helping Richard when I was at Rice on sustainable transportation, and using that, that information to, to understand where can we make these kind of early on kind of incremental changes that need to really scale up later on. So for us, it's, it's really been understanding the landscape of the different initiatives that Harris County has taken and really understanding what are the other best practices that cities that have been in this space for a long time or even counties that have been in this space for a long time and bring them here and applying them to Harris County. So it's, it's a little bit of, um, yeah, energy, green buildings, transportation, clean energy in, in, in particular, um, waste reduction. I mean, all the things that I think nowadays people are starting to really become more aware of. So, I mean, I think that's a good place to, to ask. Um, you know, there's, there's different levels to how we think about sustainability and what that means, you know, from kind of personal actions that people take all the way up to absolutely government and, you know, these larger scales. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can just start us off and talk about some of those different approaches. What should organizations be doing? You know, maybe, maybe we'll start small, right? Like, what are some measures that folks, I think, who are often keen to, okay, I want to be a little cleaner, I want, you know, to pollute a little less or whatever that may mean to them, what are some, some good measures individuals can take to be more sustainable? And then we can kind of build that up to, to some of these larger ideas. Well, so if we're talking about individuals, um, I, one thing that I like to point out to folks is in whatever role that you have in, in your career, in your community, in organizations where you may volunteer, even at home, what are the levers that are available to you? Right. So there are some generic things that we all as, uh, you know, as, as citizens uh, can do with respect to our energy consumption, our water consumption and, and things like that. And certainly voting. I want to encourage voting. <laughs> we have an election coming up. We do indeed. And that is a key in, uh, uh, you know, a key to environmental policy success. Um, but um, you know, so, for example, some of the earliest leaders in sustainability at Rice were our custodial staff, mm. right? Because th that, that was actually one big lever of opportunity. Um, you know, they control what cleaning products we use, what everyone on campus is exposed to, what happens to the trash and the recycling and so on and so forth. And so that was already kind of in place before I got to Rice because there was a uh, longtime director of custodial who understood that's where he had leverage in his life to make a positive mm. environmental change was at work through procurement through training and and how to scope the the project yeah and to add to that I, I would say that individuals even within an organization have an impact and that's something that we've been trying to convey with our county employees through commuting choices through understanding how to you know call the maintenance team when you have a room that's too hot or too cold because 
inevitably that that impacts our how we consume energy uh, at county facilities. So I think there's and even recycling. I think that's that's one of the things where um, what I've learned over the time at, at the counties there used to be recycling and then kind of disappeared. And mm. then some departments who've been very kind of uh, supportive of bringing that back have taken that initiative upon themselves and you know tried to bring it back into their own buildings. And so and then now the next step is are we actually tracking recycling and, and waste management properly. Like we ha- we've done, we've instituted that back into certain places, but then actually if are people actually recycling in the recycling bin or are they throwing recycling into the waste bin? So, I mean, it's like things like that, that seem small, but I think it still needs to be understood if we're doing doing the right things. I think that's really interesting that you have kind of immediately jump in there too, that we start with the individual. And I think for a lot of people, their their kind of thought process would be that, you know, you would recommend, oh, we'll go get solar panels on your house or, you know, start composting in your backyard or some of these kind of, you know, things that we hear about that we think about that also can feel like a large lift for individuals. Solar panels can be kind of cost prohibitive for a lot of people, right? Uh, composting in your backyard works for some people and some people don't have backyards. Right. And so it becomes difficult. And what I think I really admire about these answers is you've immediately already shifted us to thinking about larger communities, that you immediately put it in context of where do you work, where where is a group that you're involved with, how can you bring these ideas to the fold there, rather than, it's one of the things I talk about with students all the time, right, is like, this isn't on you to fix all on your own. (laughs) Richard? Well, it would, uh, when when I encounter students, they are often almost paralyzed Mm -hmm. by all of the bad environmental news that is out there. And I, I challenge them to think uh, as, as follows, that you, know, you, need, you need to live with the juxtaposition of there's really scary environmental data, but there's also a lot of people doing really fantastic work out there and some encouraging signs. Um, and so you, it's not all on you to save the world yourself, but you can work in collaboration with others and find what opportunities are available to you to make a difference. And so that's that's where that concept of what are the levers available to you um, comes into play. And we have a long history at, at Rice where we engage the students in helping us solve some of our environmental challenges. Um, and it's empowering for them. It gives them a sense of agency that this is a problem that I can at least wrap my arms around. Mm. And then it gives them something good to talk about when they're interviewing for jobs after they graduate, too. Can you talk a little more about some of those initiatives? I'm, I'm just curious what students are coming up with. Well, in fact, my job was created in part by a, a student <laughs> project years and years ago. But um, I'll, I'll give you an, an example. Um, uh, just uh, so I, I taught a class in um, 2022, fall of 2022, where uh, one of the first days of class, you know, I said, "Okay, well, let's let's just write down a list of all of the environmental problems that you see at Rice." And of course, the blackboard was covered. Right? Um, students. You mean are very, we're not perfect at Rice? We're I'm not, shocked. We're not perfect, and students are good at finding fault. <laughs> Um, God bless them. <laughs> they really um, aren't. <laughs> but then, then I turn the tables and say, okay, well, you're going to work on teams in a group project to try to attack one of these problems. Well, one of the problems that they identified is that when students move out at the end of the academic year, they throw away all kinds of mm. stuff, you know, usable stuff. And so we had a project team that decided to take on that challenge. And by the end of the semester – 
they had, um, through, through benchmarking and then working with people at Rice, had developed a plan um, where, where the, the grounds department, our, our housing folks, our facilities folks were, were working together um, with, a, uh, uh, with an external company to actually um, divert some of that waste. And some of the students stayed on as interns through my office and continued working on the project in the spring. And by the time move out happened in May, they had diverted over um, 5,000 pounds of materials that were gonna go to the landfill. These are useful household objects that other people could use. And that's not counting the weight of all of the um, dorm size refrigerators (laughs) that were gonna get thrown away. The housing department set those aside and they gave them to um, students in need who were coming in 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 the fall. And also even things like um, food that had not expired, that was packaged Mm. and unopened, that was donated to Rice's food pantry. And so we, um, you know, the students ended up through that, um, uh, you know, the result was Rice won an award through the Keep Houston Beautiful Mm. um, program through the city of Houston. And, um, you know, that came about because students saw a problem and decided that they wanted to work with Rice on trying to solve it. For, for those who don't know, you know, not at all me, but for, for other people who might not know, <laughs> what is Keep Houston Beautiful? <laughs> Do you want to take that one, uh, Lee? Have you, you worked with them? I have. Yeah, I mean, so. they're a nonprofit. I think yeah. they're actually part of a, even a national nonprofit, Keep yeah. America Beautiful. Um, but they do a lot of uh, kind of waste recycling type of beautification initiatives. And so every year, they, I don't know if they still yeah. have the mayoral awards or not. But oh, yeah, that's that's yeah. that's what we got now. Oh, now, I didn't realize the, this was, yeah, I, I know I've, I've heard of, you know, Keep America Beautiful, but yeah. I didn't realize there was a Houston chapter. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Now, yeah. the mayor pro tem showed up, not <laughs> the mayor himself. But, but it was in that beautiful old uh, library building yeah. downtown. So it was but a wonderful ceremony. Well, I, I want to go over to Lisa because I know um, – so Harris County has set a target of 40% reduction of emissions by 2030. And I want to ask first, you know, what, what prompted, you know, that number and how that, you know, idea came around. But then as we're talking about initiatives here, what are some of the initiatives that Harris County is taking to meet that goal? Sure. Um, so when we uh, – when Commissioner's Court actually approved the Climate Action Plan for internal operations in January mm-hmm. of this year, um, it was really built around kind of – a very collaborative planning process with our internal departments. And again, this is focused on internal operations, working with uh, departments like our county engineer's office and universal services and um, pollution control and, and public health and, and, and whatnot. And so it's really looking at, you know, how can we run our buildings better? How can we really adopt a more efficient um potentially like low to zero emission fleet? How can we improve our waste and uh, waste reduction practices? How can we procure greener materials and actually kind of reduce those, you know, the scope three emissions? Um, and so that 40% target was actually kind of seeing the lay of the land. What other counties, other cities have kind of set as a 2030 target? Mm. Now, 2030 targets are actually a little bit newer in, sen- in the sense that most cities have done like 2040, 2050, but we really mm. felt like that was almost too far off, right? A little bit intangible, it, oftentimes it, beyond the, you know, the it, term of an elected <laughs> official. And it, yeah, it doesn't impact decision-making in the moment. Yeah. And no. so, you know, having that 2030, I mean, six, seven years, we really don't have that much time to make, right. a, you know, this this level of uh, commitment and reduction. And so, you know, if you looked at the different reports, IPCC, the White House, I mean, it was kind of ranging between 40 and 60%. And so, you know, this being the first time there's been a really concerted effort from the county side to reduce our emissions. We're like, let's let's say 40%. If we go above, 
let's try. But knowing all the different incentives from the Inflation Reduction Act, the you know the bipartisan infrastructure mm-hmm. law, there's a lot of different things coming from the federal level now that we can leverage that hopefully might help us get beyond 40%. But for the first time the county do, is doing this, I think 40% was a pretty ambitious goal. I you know, I, I would be inclined to agree, actually, that it's a very ambitious goal. I think it's one of these funny things where a lot of organizations come out and are, are claiming, you know, oh, we're going to be totally carbon neutral by 2030. You know, we're going to have zero emissions by 2035. And I... I look at these things with a lot of suspects because a hundred percent reduction reduction and you know in, in six or seven years is probably more than ambitious and there, yeah. there's a there's an argument for the shoot for the moon and you know we fall and you know okay but we still done a lot but forty percent actually feels like a tangible achievable goal it's a big goal but it's also one that I think sets a really high floor for you yeah and again the shorter time frame just makes this make makes it even more important for us to coordinate early on make sure the frameworks are there you know open dialogue and trust with the different departments and really just make sure that we're all kind of mission aligned towards this goal. So can you talk some about what are the steps, what are the initiatives that you're taking to get to that 40%? Yeah. So when we did our first emissions inventory last year, you know, the bulk of our emissions, this is probably standard for, for most uh, organizations came from our running our, our buildings and our, our facilities and our fleet. So we actually have, um, you know, 75% of our fleet, is is uh, law enforcement fleet. So actually understanding how to move over to f- electrified fleet or even hybrid fleet or just more fuel efficient um, vehicles for you know, the sheriff's office and the constable precincts, that's a new space for, for me even. Mm. When, I was, when I was at the city, most of the fleet electrification fleet electrification efforts were for light duty, non-emergency fleet. Mm. And so that's kind of a new area that we've been trying to explore. Um, and we actually, I think, uh, chiefly with the sheriff's office actually posted a video on LinkedIn of their first two Mustang Mach-E's, uh, their first two electric vehicles. So oh, that's nice. pretty exciting. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's kind of the fleet side. But again, we're also running into issues just like everyone else with supply chain. So mm. we've placed orders and we're still waiting on vehicles. So that's something that's, you know, out of our sphere of control. But um, on the building side, I would say, you know, we have an awesome energy manager, Glenn Roden, who might be listening right now. Um, <laughs> hi, Glenn. <laughs> and, you know, he's done a fantastic job of actually kind of helping us figure out, like, what's the low hanging fruit what can we do that's low cost no cost you know i learned from richard all the time he has a fantastic energy management team you know what are the things that we can do to really just start running our buildings better what are some of those things scheduling uh making as as glenn would say you know not uh heating and cooling your building at the same time i mean fairly basic things making sure you turn off your building when no one's in the in in it's (laughs) occupied right when it's unoccupied um things like that This is a really important point that you've raised in that the first step is not cover the building in solar panels. It's make it operate efficiently. Yes, efficiency first and then renewable energy. That's that's what we're trying to do. (laughs) Gold star for Harris County. (laughs) Richard, do you want to talk about some of those efficiency measures then or things that that spring to mind as really some of that low-hanging fruit maybe for those who are interested in in advocating for this as you've encouraged us to do in our workplaces? Well, uh, you know, it's... uh, uh, you know, lighting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yep. beyond just scheduling so that you're not, you know, for, for rice, it would be ridiculous for us to, you know, be cooling the buildings to, you know, 72 degrees at two in the, in the, um, in the evening mm-hmm. or at two at night. Right. Um, 
I don't think graduate students would be in there. <laughs> uh, let me retract that statement. Uh, no, we, what we do is we work with with the um, with the building managers to identify what is the usage pattern for the building, and then uh, tune the schedule to that. So if, if graduate students are going to be working at two a.m., then you need to provide um, uh, proper environmental conditions. But if no one's going to be in there, then that mechanical equipment does you know can be put in a setback mode, and at that point, you're only keeping things from getting too far out of range. You don't want it to get too humid or something like that. Um, but some of the measures that I'm sure um, uh, Lisa is also looking at with counties involves, you know, okay, are, are you using LED lighting now or do you still have really, you know, old incandescent or fluorescent lighting? Um, how about the building envelope, the building skin? Is it really leaky on days like today where it's actually cold and blustery? Do you <laughs> feel it sitting in your office because it's coming through the windows? Mm. Um, or is the building tight? Because if the building's tight, then you can hold the energy in. Otherwise, if it's a really leaky building, it's like you're, you're conditioning a birdcage, you know. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, at Rice, we have a lot of laboratory buildings. Mm. And those are particularly um, uh, uh, energy-intensive. And um, part of that is a piece of equipment called a fume hood. And so you want to be really careful about uh, how often you open up the fume hoods and whether you leave them fully open when nobody is using them because it basically sucks conditioned air through the hood and exhausts it out the, uh, um, out the stack on the top of the building. And that can be enormously wasteful. But if you either have automatic uh, sensors to lower the fume hood or if you train the lab staff to properly manage that, then you can uh, reduce the consumption. And then also, what do you got plugged in inside the building? <laughs> that's, that's another thing as well. Um, you know, I, I, I'd mentioned earlier those, those dorm refrigerators. Like how many people ended up putting dorm refrigerators out in their garage, plug, plugging them in, and then keeping <laughs> beer in there, right? Um, or, you know, or soda. And that's going to be the most expensive drink you ever had because, you know, if, if you have uh, an inefficient little refrigerator sitting in a 100-degree garage, that thing is, is just going to be burning energy constantly. So, I mean, it's interesting because some of what I'm hearing you talk about is these efficiency measures we've talked about. Actually, we just talked about last week the importance of efficiency with Dan mm. Cohan. Uh-huh. Um, but also, you know, some of what you're discussing is education and just awareness and really getting people to kind of rethink how they interact with the spaces they're in. Um, but one thing that occurs to me is the way that I think all the measures you're kind of suggesting probably actually wind up being big cost-saving measures and, you know, really reducing redundancies. Um, and so one of the things that I want to point us to, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is the ways that sustainability and, and improving our, you know, our, our green footprint, our carbon footprint, how we're thinking about this, whatever – really, though, actually saves us money in the long run. And can you talk some to, to actually how this is a better method of going forward? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one, actually. So um, when we created Glenn's role, our energy manager role, we actually also created a revolving energy efficiency fund. And this was an idea that we borrowed from um, when I was with the city of San Antonio. We actually had a revolving fund like that 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 funded our energy manager and two other staff. And it was really just making sure that we recaptured those utility savings from these energy efficiency investments. And I think there are other universities and other kind of entities that have similar type of funding mechanisms. And so we have that in place. We just need to kind of create that standard operating procedure to make sure that we're tracking those savings and then putting it back in the fund and then reinvesting those in things that's for things that are harder to fund. Like oftentimes like the non-capital projects are what we have uh, challenges in, in, in finding um, 
money for. So it's things like building operator training or other、mm. things that actually help kind of everything around the installation of HVAC equipment or, or that. It's like the operational piece that oftentimes is the, is the challenge for us. So it's really, you know, the next step is to kind of make that revolving fund come to life and, and really work for us. But there's a, we're already seeing kind of some projected savings on some of the work that、um, Glenn's been doing. And so it's been、uh, next year, hopefully, will be the kind of the implementation acceleration year, and we'll actually be able to recapture those savings. On the water side, we're seeing tremendous savings through enhanced leak detection. So we're installing a lot of water submeters, and I have a member of my staff who has a series of dashboards that he watches very closely. And as soon as there's a You know, a toilet that won't stop flushing, say, in a dormitory or something like that, he's on it. And、um, it's amazing. A, a, a single toilet that won't stop flushing, like one of those flush valve toilets,、um, can consume several times more water than the entire dormitory would during normal times. And so, in a couple of days, you can, you can go through thousands of dollars worth of water.、Um, and so, you catch one of those leaks, and you have paid for the meter. And we have many instances like, like that already where, where you know, we had paybacks on installing those submeters in literally days, if not weeks, because we immediately found, oh, wow, there's something weird in the data. Let's start looking for where that's coming from. And then you discover something that、uh, it's like, okay, let's bring out the plumbing shop and get this fixed. You know, Rice isn't that large of a university in, in the scheme of, of large universities. I, I went to LSU for my undergrad,、uh, you know, certainly、uh, UH. And,、uh, I believe you went to Texas AM, Lisa. You know, I mean, it's,、uh, you know, these large universities have, have whole different scales of problems. And yet, something I've never thought about until this moment is how many toilets do we have at Rice University? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it does, it just it brings up these ideas of, yeah, of course, it becomes so important to really hone in on these kind of efficiency measures. When you Are dealing with, I don't know how many toilets we have, but quite a few, I would imagine. <laughs> There are quite a few, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see we have a question from Rico、uh, specifically about some kind of household things、uh, and thinking, you know, we just had a really gruelingly hot summer.、Um, we're heading into winter that, you know, hopefully won't be horrific, but we certainly have, have had really stark winters in the past by, by Houston and Texas standards.、Um, and so some of these efficiency measures, you know, what are things people can be doing in their homes to help with those AC, with those heating costs? What are things that people should be paying attention to at their own level? Well, I mean, just, just like we were talking about building scheduling for Harris County and Rice University, there are thermostats that enable you to do that at home. So I've got a whole schedule that I've set up where、um, you know, it knows when we leave the house and、mm. we put the, the air conditioner into a setback mode. And right around when we're supposed to come home, it starts cooling the house down again. And,、um, Uh, and you know, I put in vacation settings when, when we、uh, go out of town.、Um, and so that's, that's something that's you know, a very simple application of technology that can save you lots of money every month, especially during the summer. Yeah, and this, this question actually, actually came up during our employee education webinar.、Uh, one of the panelists actually recommended just shutting it all off. But one thing to counter that is you really have to understand, like, When you get home, though, what are you cooling it back、mm-hmm. down to? You know,、mm-hmm. like, so it, there's kind of a balance there.、Um, and the other thing is, if you have someone who's home all day when you're at work,、no. this might not work. So I have a spouse who、yeah. works from home a lot. And so we really can't actually do a lot of 
temperature kind of set point mm-hmm. changes. But um, but we we do try to stay mindful of like when are we doing the laundry? When are we yeah. plugging the vehicle? Maybe we do that off peak times, that sort of thing. So. <laughs> I, I I converted from a natural gas to an electric water heater recently, mm-hmm. and that it had smart controls in it where you could program, uh, uh, you know, to what temperature it will heat the water and at what time, so you could put a schedule on it as well. And so I don't I don't need the water to be warm, you know, uh, at three in the morning. Oh, wow. I'm not awake, um, <laughs> but you know, certainly at six or seven in the morning, I want a nice warm shower. Um, and so you can you you can you can time it like that so that you're not wasting energy when you when you don't need um, when you don't need that water in the middle of the night. Yeah. So certainly yeah. some smart tech solutions. Yeah. I, I can think of. I have a couple of those um, <laughs> kind of automatic timers for various things that get plugged into the wall at home. Yeah. And so you know, there's different. You know, just as you can do it for your AC, you can do it for a lot of your appliances. You know, it doesn't really work for your fridge that you want on at all times. But you can get an Energy Star certified fridge. Yeah. At least you know, yeah. yeah, you can't turn it off, but at least it's a little bit more. That's efficient. that's that's <laughs> a really good point. So when the time comes for you to replace some of your equipment, just like we would do at at Ricer for the county is just be conscious when you're looking at your choices of what are going to be the long-term operational costs of you know the energy it consumes the water it consumes depending upon what the equipment is and and help that make your your decision maybe uh, maybe you end up paying a few dollars uh, extra up front that pays back in a year or two sometimes it's even cheaper up front yep. Well, and something that I can think of, too, as you were talking about, you know, making sure windows are well insulated, right? One of these things, when I was living up north, you would constantly hear, right, you didn't want the heat to leak out of the windows. Um, You know, energy audits, uh, there are now tax credits from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act where you can actually get an energy audit and have your house examined and have someone come and and really think through these issues specifically for your home, which I think is is an important way to go about this. Okay, so we're, we're at the 1230 mark, so I just want to plug really quick that you're listening to KPFT Houston, uh, and we're currently in our October fund drive. And as public radio, KPFT Houston can only exist with your support. Uh, over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and you want to support our work, please call in today. Uh, the number is 713-526-KPFT. That's 713-526-KPFT. Any amount helps. Uh, give us a call and mention Gulf Streams when you call in. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, so diving back into the into the conversation a little bit, um, one of the things that I, I want to think about are maybe we'll jump back to the city level a little bit. What are some of these, you know, uh, or the, the, the you know the county, the city, these larger organizations? Um, you know, what are things that we can be doing um, as as larger entities, right, or that we should be doing? Uh, and I'm specifically interested about you know Rice in some ways is, is kind of a small city. We are, um, and so you know, how are we thinking about these really large populations, uh, what are the next things we can do? Not just maybe the, the low-hanging fruit, but what are some of the steps we should be taking towards you know, building greener buildings or thinking about larger infrastructural issues? I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think you know where where we can make an impact at the county is um, leading by example in some of the kind of the newer technologies. I think there's a lot of discussion around um, resilience hubs around the world, actually, and so you know um, we're trying to kind of do a smaller test pilot with like clean energy resilience hubs. So looking at how do we make sure that our, our commu- community centers and 
uh, Harris County Public Libraries, you know, are able to serve the community in times of, of need um, with kind of on-site solar and battery storage. And so we're, we are close to kind of uh, releasing an RFP for that. And it's things like that where, like, hopefully other um, – you know, cities around us or towns around us. I know there's even kind of a grassroots level from uh, different community-based organizations looking at kind of community-owned assets and doing that type of, you know, technology enhancement. Well, I imagine it's especially complex for you with the county level when you are yep. working between multiple cities, different governments. I mean, yeah. it, that's that's got to be a lift of some kind. Yeah. And so I think it's just showing that things like that can work. And especially when, um, when you know, when there's a hurricane or there's a grid outage mm. that these these do perform and they do uh, provide that uh, support that residents need when they need to charge their, you know, their cell phone or get in contact with a loved one. And so it's, it's things like that where we're trying to kind of pave that way so that people can help, you know, adopt that, uh, that, those actions as well. And then there, there are of course things that the city and county can do because of just what they are and the scale that they have their problems that are kind of uniquely suited for them to take on um, like you know urban heat island effect for yep. for example mm-hmm. they can they can move the needle a lot more than a homeowner yes um, yep. uh, or you know thinking about how do you invest in infrastructure and what is that infrastructure going to look like and you know who's it going to impact yeah and i think you know to your point about the urban heat island we um the the city county and um hark actually just won a and, and some community partners won a usda urban community forest grant so that mm. part of that grant will be addressing um urban heat island um kind of expanding upon the kind of uh, study that was done a couple years ago and then also looking at you know increasing tree canopy in disadvantaged communities yeah i mean because think about it it's 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 crazy there's some parts of the city that are are roughly 20 degrees warmer than others that's that's what the urban heat island effect results in and it doesn't it that difference doesn't go away just when the sun goes down like at night times are are warmer too and um in communities have been you know historically disenfranchised and kept out of uh, decision making um that's also where you may find homes that are maybe a, a little more le- leaky don't have as efficient air conditioning and so you know that causes individuals um heating and cooling bills to go up and plus can you imagine if you're having to you know stand out for public transit and you're in an area where it's 20 degrees warmer than it you know uh than it is at by leafy rice university um on a day that's already 100 degrees outside. Well, that you actually, know, t- sorry, that, that takes me right to where I wanted to, to go next for a question, which is how do we think of sustainability as an equity issue? Huh. One of the things we talk a lot about is environmental justice and, you know, how, how these problems do exactly impact different neighborhoods, different communities, very differently based on socioeconomic racial breakdowns of these communities. Um, so how, how can we understand sustainability as uh, as an issue of equity, but also as a way of, of repairing some of these historic harms. Well, I, th- I think again, the urban heat island effect is is a great example of showing the uh, the accumulation of inequities that has resulted in um, uh, an environmental and human health problem. Um, yeah, and from the county's perspective, we're actually so I, I mentioned our climate action plan for internal operations. We call that phase one. Phase two is actually our our uh, forthcoming climate justice plan, and so we are partnering with uh, community based organization SEER and um, the Hershey Foundation on on paving this new way of planning, even uh, with communities, especially frontline community members, 
at the outset of the planning process. So we've actually gone through a series of visioning meetings this year. We're using that to inform, you know, the kind of equity framework and, you know, what what are the vision and values of these community members that have been really subjected to these uh, environmental harms for, for forever and making sure that their needs are addressed in the climate action plan, the climate justice plan um, next year. And so that's, it's, it's a relatively um, kind of, nuanced process because I think oftentimes, you know, be it at the county or city, a lot of planning happens behind doors. And there's kind mm-hmm. of this um, way of of like a one-way communication avenue to, with community members. We're really trying to kind of reinvent that and reimagine mm-hmm. what that can be. And so um, it's been a very uh, deliberate process. I'm not saying it's a fast process, but I don't think it can be a fast process because in order to kind of really have meaningful engagement, it takes time. And so that's... That's what we're trying to do. So. If, if, if you scale up to you know, national and global scales, I mean, it, time and time again, it's often the communities that contributed the least to the problem mm-hmm. get yep. hit the hardest, or yep. countries that contributed the least to the problem get hit the hardest. And you know, when, when negotiations go on related to uh, you know, uh, the climate summits and, and that sort of thing, that's, that's one of the thorny issues is you know, the U.S. trying to tell other folks what to do? Are you kidding me? (laughs) And Lisa, I think what you were pointing at is also one of the really difficult parts of this, right? On one hand, we really feel this pressure of climate change is here. We're feeling it like we understand that, right? We want to address it and work on it now. And at the same time, for these solutions to be equitable, as fair as we can make them, to be really community-minded, which both means that, you know, community members embrace and adopt many of these things, Mm -hmm. but also that it, it genuinely does reflect exactly what you're talking about Richard you know these these organiz- these these individuals who have contributed least are not adversely harmed by right. ongoing issues that takes time and so it becomes this kind of contrasting thing of we want to move really fast but actually if we want to do this right we can't rush it um, which is it's hard to grapple with and I think students in particular often feel really they struggle with that yeah I mean I, I would say that um, it uh, I do trust this process because I think we also acknowledge that the county can't do everything. Like Mm -hmm. we, at the end of the day, can't implement everything that, that, that will come, you know, that will rise up from this planning process. And so building this trust and building this relationship and the foundation with community partners and, and other agencies and departments at the county now will help us on the, on the back end, on the implementation side. So I have one more question for you, and then I'm going to have to let you go so we can go over to an urban planning segment that we have all queued up. Um, But I want to ask you about, you know, particularly for young people who I think, and, you know, I'm imagining high schoolers here, but also certainly college students and, you know, maybe maybe other folks as well. You know, I I opened this episode by talking about growth and green jobs. Um, What is advice that you have for folks who who want to get more involved in the sustainability space, who, who or maybe thinking, you know, ooh, director of sustainability, what a cool job. I, I wish I could do something like that. What are steps you think people should take? What, what advice do you have? Well, I'm around that age group all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't uh, cue that up exactly uh, <laughs> for you, Richard. It's fine. <laughs> well, and you know, th- there are jobs that are born green and jobs that you can make green, mm. right? And so I, th- I think that's that's one insight. You can you don't have to necessarily look for the job that has sustainability in the title in order to make a really big difference. You just bring that lens with you into whatever you do. Um, but another thing I tell students is 
uh, is that you need to rather quickly be pretty specific about what you are looking for or what two or three things. If somebody comes to me and says, well, I want a job in sustainability, I just kind of throw my hands up like, well, what do you mean? Do you, <laughs> are, do you want to design green buildings? Or, are, are you want to be in, you know, grow organic food? Do you want to develop wind farms? But if, if somebody says, well, I would like to be involved in developing utility-scale solar projects in the state of Texas. <laughs> Suddenly, I can say, you know what? I know people who do that, and I know a little bit about that. Let me give you some context. Uh, you know, reach out to these people, set up informational interviews, um, use LinkedIn, make sure your your profile uh, looks professional. So it's 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 also just. Understanding what is it you're truly after, and don't take the shotgun approach. Take the laser beam <laughs> approach, right? Yeah, and I would say um, we actually have five new positions on commissioner's court tomorrow oh, wow. for approval for our, our office, actually. So we're actually adding to the green jobs pool. Of so apply, apply, apply now. <laughs> don't forget about public sector. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here, and we actually have a climate justice manager role Um pending approval tomorrow, uh, that will be open. So, you know. It, it's, you know, this this <laughs> sector is growing rapidly. When I started at Rice, there were about 50 sustainability officers in higher education. This was back in 2004. And, and now, not only do most universities and colleges have sustainability officers, they're usually departments doing the kinds of jobs that we've been talking about. And it has spread to, you know, counties and cities and companies and nonprofits and on and on and on. And so, um, you know, and as uh, I'm sure the listeners have heard commitments from all kinds of companies and, and governments, we want to achieve X by date Y. Well, it takes people to do that, right? And so, you know, I, I think the, the scale of opportunity for people who want to give, get into that kind of career is just going to increase. Lisa and Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. I've so enjoyed getting to talk with you. Uh, Richard, we're having you back in a few weeks, so I'm looking forward to that conversation. Um, And thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful information with us. It's really been great chatting. Thank you, Weston. We'll go now to a clip from CNAN, who is following up on one of our ongoing stories. Uh, She has an update on some urban development and planning issues going on around Houston. Welcome to Paving the Path to Walkable Communities. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Marisem Communities, a Houston-based developer breaking new ground on a walkable neighborhood complete with approximately 800 residences, 42 acres of devoted agriculture, a 25-acre lake, and more than 70,000 square feet of mixed-use commercial development. Marisem is rewriting community planning, dedicating over half the space to open areas and introducing agrihoods, a residential neighborhood centered around community farming. Today, I'm joined by Scott Snodgrass, a founding member of Maristem Communities. I'm Scott Snodgrass, and I'm one of the founding partners of Maristem Communities. Uh, We're a a human-centered real estate design firm based in Houston, Texas. Uh, And we asked the question, you know, what if places were, were built for people and not for cars, capitals, and corporations? So we, we envision a world where um, develop real estate development happens thinking about the people that are going to be the end users of those space first and foremost. So can you tell us a little bit about inspiration behind Indigo and the, an overview of the development? So my business partner and I actually come from the agriculture world and Clayton and I connected and started working together and we have a company called Agmenity and Agmenity 
um, provides agricultural amenity services to master plan community developers, um, hospitals, school districts. And then we also had a large scale vegetable farm. Um, and we were, um, we had a CSA program, like a weekly share program going out to 350 families in Houston a week. We had bought almost 300 acres for that farm and realized that we were never going to grow to that size. So in the way that some developers move towards agrihoods, we actually did the opposite. We already had the farm there. How do we bring a community into the farm? And so uh, we decided to develop Indigo. Um, now uh, Indigo is 235 acres. You know, we we decided to go the single family route. So we have 661 homes coming across three sections. First section will launch um, in February of this year with our grand opening. And then we'll basically... November of next year and November of the following year deliver the next two sections. And then we have about 150 apartment units. So yeah, that's the very basics of, of the neighborhood. All right. I mean, that's super awesome to hear. And kind of going back to the concept of the agri-hood, like, so what exactly is an agri-hood? And can you elaborate on the specific benefits that residents can enjoy as a result of having an agri-hood within the neighborhood? And so I would say that it really is a part of the identity. So for me, that's that's the definition of agrihood um, because there's so many different ways for communities to center themselves around agriculture. And I think that those have to be regionally, regionally contextual choices that you make. And then the interaction points for residents, we provide a bunch of different touch points. So maybe when your family comes in town and stays with you for Thanksgiving, you go visit the farm just to kind of show it off to your family. Then the next level is the folks who are out exercising and they love to make the farm a part of their, you know, their, their, their uh, exercise ritual. And so people will come and just kind of go through the space. Maybe they'll stop and feed the goats, you know, a, a collared leaf or something like that. Then we have people who want to interact with the vegetables who are actually there about purchasing fruits and vegetables and consuming more fruits and vegetables. So they may come buy vegetables at the farm stand um, so those are the vegetable ways they can interact. And then even beyond that, if they want to get more into the growing part of agriculture, um, you know, we offer classes that teach people how to do home gardening, that they can garden at home themselves. Um, so kind of going back to the walkability aspect of Indigo, I remember when you're introducing Maristem community, communities, you said it's human-centric design. And I'd love to hear about how exactly Indigo integrates these principles into its design to create like a more connected and vibrant neighborhood. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this is a place that the the suburbs of Houston have failed so much. It's one of the main ways that the suburbs have failed. And there's a lot you have to do to not fail. And so as we were designing Indigo, that was one of the first things we worked on is how do we how do we get walkability? So number one is having a place to walk to. Uh, so we believed it was really important for people to be walking to meet their daily needs. Mm-hmm. So first thing was have a place to walk to. So Indigo Commons is our town center. Uh, and in the Commons, we'll have a, a wide range of small businesses there to serve people's daily needs. Um, so the filling station is the first building that's going in. Uh, it's going to be a general store. It'll have vegetables from the farm, eggs from the farm, meat from local providers. They'll sell grains and pasta, jams and jellies and pickles and all that stuff. Uh, also beer, wine and coffee, and then a limited food menu. And so um, that basic space is somewhere for people to walk, that they can walk every day for their cup of coffee, that they can walk twice a week or three times a week to pick up vegetables for dinner. We really needed to provide that. So then two was distance. 
Um, and how do you, you know, you can locate that general store in the center of your neighborhood. Um, but then still, if the furthest out homes are a 15 or 20 minute walk, then the likelihood of people choosing to walk over drive really starts to dwindle. So it was important for us to get the vast majority of our homes within a five minute walk of the commons. And so we've done that. We have more than 600 of our 661 homes will be less than a five minute walk to the commons. Um, the way you do that is density. You know, you can, if you, if you have giant lots, then only so many of those giant lots can fit within the five minute walk. And then you go into the actual walking spaces. We knew we wanted to do safe streets. That was a big thing for us. And so that means on-street parking, which provides a barrier between sidewalk and street. Um, it also causes drivers to drive more slowly because they're not sure if something or someone is going to come walking out from behind a car. Street trees, which in, in the absence of cars actually being parked there, that they call it visual friction. So looking down a street and seeing something repetitively makes you drive a little slower. Also provides a barrier between the sidewalk and the vehicles that are driving. Um, and then uh, those street trees also provide shade, which adds to the comfort of walking. And then the, the big swing that we actually took on this was when we designed our street grid, we went in and took out every other street uh, and turned them into parks. And so um, you can only do that if you are using alleys to serve your homes with cars. Um, and so we have homes that have an alley on the back, but the front of the home is not on a street. It's on a linear park. We designed the neighborhood where from even our furthest away homes, a child could walk to the common safely, only have to cross maybe two streets to get there. And when they cross those streets, they're at raised pedestrian crossings. And so the sidewalk stays at one level across. The cars have to come up onto a table and then back down. And so the, the indication there is that this is a place for pedestrians. We're prioritizing the pedestrians. The vehicles are the ones who are going to change their level and go up and down. So they have to slow down going into those like you do with a speed bump uh, anyway. And that provides for a little more safety there. I love what you guys are doing with human-centric design. I feel like in Houston especially, so many areas are built for cars. Um, so you mentioned Indigo Commons. So this is kind of set to be the central hub of the community. What kind of businesses and services do you aim to attract to enhance the residents' quality of life? I know you mentioned the general store, but I'd love to hear about what other yeah. types of services. It's so easy when you're designing a place to want the place to look cool and be really interesting and to have really interesting small businesses. And we do want to have interesting small businesses, but we also have to balance the fact that people just need their basic needs met. And sometimes those businesses aren't sexy, you know, exciting businesses that you want to write a press release about. And so, you know, we're going to have the nail salon and we're going to have the dentist and those other things. Some of those things where people can serve their basic needs because you need to. Um, we also hope to have some really great restaurants and um, small businesses that are doing, you know, craft sort of products, whether it be food or wooden toys for kids or uh, a scarf boutique or who knows, you know, what, what ends up in, in these spaces. But we hope to attract a wide range of those. And then we're also just some other stuff. We're hoping to have a co-working space, a brewery, an event center and a small boutique hotel um, in the space as well. Just maybe 20 doors or something like that. Awesome. So I'd like to shift our focus to kind of talk more about the environment. 
And I would love if you'd be able to elaborate on just specifically like the sustainability and environmental benefits of the Indigo community. So when we started looking into um, the land planning and the design framework there, we realized that if we can reduce people's vehicle miles traveled, we can probably also reduce the number of vehicles owned per family, which um, reducing vehicle miles traveled and specifically vehicle ownership also saves a lot of money and allows someone who makes less money to buy a little bit more expensive of a home. So that was a, you know, a two solutions uh, from one action scenario. And we feel like one of the most impactful that we could have. So we really, really focused there starting. And then we've started to now surround um, some other sustainability stuff um, items. So we're, we're reusing our um, effluent from our wastewater treatment plant for the irrigation on the property. We eventually will probably hit the point where we don't actually release any effluent into the waterways. It's all reused um, for irrigation. And that's just that fits nicely because of the sizing, the community versus the sizing of our open space. We're we're more than 50 percent open space across the community as a whole. Um, that's the other benefit of small lots is you can reserve more green space for for people to share. We, we like to say that we took the private backyards and made them into public parks. Uh, and then everyone gets to use them when they want to. Um, and then we're working also on the solar and battery storage side towards having um, our home builders at least offer solar ready for the homes and working with solar providers that can market to the residents to add solar when their homes are purchased, which makes it a lot more affordable than retrofitting it. And then um, we've, we're developing an amenity lake. It's 25 acres. Um, so it's pretty sizable. And then we're putting in a lot of bird and fish and reptile and amphibian habitat um, throughout the lake as well. So we want it to be a, a really vibrant ecosystem that exists in the lake where people can go experience nature. That sounds really great. Like, I think something that's really important, like with development these days, is also thinking about environment, thinking about people. Uh, I'm curious to know how Marison Communities like envisions the evolution of this concept in the future. Are you guys going to have any like are there any similar developments that you're thinking of down the road or what are kind of your long-term goals for indigo but also other developments so i think we see a couple of things one we have some challenges with the idea of greenfield development because houston uh, is so big that if you're developing in a greenfield area you're almost you know you're almost guaranteed to be requiring quite a bit of commuting we're adding to traffic patterns or you know, all those things like we're not um, we're realistic. We know that the people who live in Indigo are going to have cars. Our goal is that the three car family, maybe we maybe we get 20 percent of the three car families to go down to two car families. And that's sort of a change. It's incremental. And and also Houston is so underserved from housing that we probably still need some greenfield development. Um, I would just love to see it be. 10 or 20% of our development and for 80 or 90 to go into um, increasing density and adaptive reuse in the city. And so um, when we actually came across the concept neighborhood guys, we were like, oh, this is what we want to do. And so we're friends with Jeff and, and David over oh, there. Awesome. Uh, and so we know that concept neighborhoods idea of like take a neighborhood and envision something different for the neighborhood but that mm -hmm. still respects the existing neighborhood that's there. Um, and then to do that in a manner that's trying to reduce the reliance on vehicles like that, that is definitely an interest of ours. I think we'll be across all asset types. We don't really want to be uh, typecast into master plan community developers in a greenfield scenario. We'll work across all those different asset classes.
Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see your upcoming developments and also the transformation of Indigo. You said it would um, be done by 2025. Yeah, the last phase will launch late 2025, probably mid-2026, the community will be complete. So three years from now, it's pretty quick. So thank you to Scott for joining us today. That concludes our insightful discussion about Indigo, the transformative community that is centered around human walkability, nature, and agriculture. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, keep walking towards a brighter, more connected future in your communities. Thanks, Sienna. Something I'd also like to note before we uh, we talk through how to get involved is what Richard was saying earlier. Uh, November 7th is Election Day, and no single action we can take matters more, especially on the local level, than voting. Early voting is already on, and you can vote anytime up until November 7th. Please make sure to raise your voice, go to the polls, vote for the future of the city, the county, the state. Uh, the top of mind issue for most people will, be, of course, be the mayoral election. But I want to note there are several important issues all over the ballot, and numerous great voting guides are available to you online, including a full sample ballot for your address provided by the Houston Chronicle that explains the candidates and different issues. Uh, in particular, I'd like to mention a couple of propositions on the ballot that are environmentally related. Um, The first is a local issue, Proposition B. This is a measure that would mean Houston would leave regional groups whose representative appointments are based are not based on population. Uh, currently, Houston sits on the Houston-Galveston Area Council and makes up 30% of the population of that area, but only has two representatives out of 37. Uh, Prop B would start to force the region to give greater representation to each voter rather than geographic areas. This is really important in terms of not only Houston, but areas like Katy and Fort Bend that are rapid growing. Um, The federal funds that come through that, including Harvey Relief, have been really an important conversation over the last few years. And so I would strongly encourage you to think about Prop B and what that would mean for the future of how funds are distributed in the city and county and the greater area. Additionally, there are several measures that the statewide level that are relevant, um, including Prop 5 that would increase university research funding, Prop 6 and 7, which would respectively create water and energy funds, and that's to help solidify water uh, and electric supplies in the future. Um, I will note Prop 7 only extends to oil and natural gas, fossil fuels, so it's, uh, you know, that's something to really consider, and that's with any of these things that you're thinking about voting on. Go home, take a look into these, but these are issues that really will shape the future of where we live and how we exist. Um, All of these measures of past are going to have long-lasting impacts. Oh, I also want to mention really quick Prop 14, which would create a fund to buy new land for state parks, another uh, issue that's been popping up over the last couple of years. So please spend some time reading up on what's on your ballot and make sure to go early vote or head to the polls on November 7th. Up next on Gulf Streams, we're talking with Beth White, President and CEO of Houston Parks Board, and Daniel Potter, Senior Director of Research at Rice's Kinder Institute. They'll walk us through the state of our parks in Houston, what changes are coming for our green spaces, and what we should do to make sure our parks function better for everyone in the city. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081. Or email me at westontrice.edu. Finally, I'd like to remind listeners that KPFT is in our October fund drive. To support more programming, please call 713-526-KPFT, press 1 for donations, and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going.
This work is only possible with your generous support. So please call in to 713-526-KPFT Extension 1 and make a pledge to keep us on the air in bringing you the most important stories about the environment and our changing climate here in Houston. Gulfstreams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R &R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.